The Earth is not the only planet to undergo climate change. If we just look at our solar neighborhood, we see that Mars and Venus also underwent times of intense swings in climate. Even our own Earth radically changed over the course of its history. Perhaps we can learn about our current time of climate change by looking at the history of the planet as a whole. By doing this, we can understand what the Earth is going through and how we are affecting the Earth. When people talk about climate change, it often comes down to how crummy of a job we're doing taking care of the Earth. We're the bad guys. Sometimes people refer to the human race as a virus or a scourge upon the Earth. This is Spark Dialogue Podcast. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the story of science and technology and how they relate to our society, history, ethics, philosophy, culture, art, religion, and the future. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. Hi, I'm Adam Frank, and I'm a professor of astrophysics at the University of Rochester. I also do a lot of writing for the public about things like climate change and astronomy, and sometimes about aliens. Adam's most recent book is Light of the Stars, Alien Worlds and the Fate of the Earth. It's a book about climate change from an astrophysical point of view. He points out that the Earth will continue to go on even if we radically disrupt the climate. But the question is, will we, as a race, survive? Adam says... We aren't collectively the villains, but we may collectively become losers. Our job is not to save the Earth, it's to keep from pissing it off, because the Earth is going to be just fine on the long term. I mean, we need to take the proper astrobiological perspective on what's happening with us. And when we do that, you know, we one of the things we have to do is look at the Earth's long history of the interaction between the biosphere and the rest of the planet. So, you know, you've got the biosphere, you've got the atmosphere, you've got the hydrosphere, the cryosphere, which is all the ice, and the lithosphere. And life has been strongly affecting those other systems for billions of years. The idea that we're gonna destroy the Earth gives us way too much credit. We are certainly changing the Earth, and we're changing the Earth in ways that could be very, very detrimental to the project of civilization that we're all pretty wedded to. But the idea that we're going to destroy life uh, on the on the planet is just ridiculous, right? It, you know, we're giving ourselves way too much credit. You know, this is not to say this is does not give us, you know, a license to practice ecological or environmental hooliganism, as Gavin Schmidt likes to call it. Uh, but, you know, what it shows is that, you know, we're, the way we often talk about climate change, we got the wrong perspective. It's about us. It's about our ability to survive and our project of civilization to be able to survive on the planet. And the changes that we're driving are going to make could make it very, very difficult to maintain this project of civilization. The Earth, on the other hand, in the long term, like even if we drive a mass extinction, you know, the Earth will very easily recover as it has in the past and create new environmental niches for new species with the climate change that we drive. And we're only here now because there was a mass extinction that wiped out the dinosaurs. So, you know, this this change in story is really important for us to understand what is at stake with climate change and the the very critical role we're playing in it. At this point, most scientists agree. We're changing the climate, quite possibly for the detriment of our civilization and for our species. But it's interesting to note that this isn't the first time in the history of the Earth that living things cause a radical change in climate. Other species have changed the Earth so drastically that they could no longer live happy little lives on the surface of the Earth. 
The most important example is what's called the Great Oxidation Event, which um, happened about 2.5 billion years ago. If you were to arrive on the Earth 3 billion years ago, if you landed and stepped out of your spaceship, the first thing that would happen is you'd asphyxiate. Because even though we had an atmosphere, there was no oxygen in that atmosphere. And so it was only the evolution of photosynthesizers. It was the evolution of a particular kind of photosynthesis by the blue-green bacteria that generated the oxygen atmosphere. So in many ways, the oxygen atmosphere that we now happily enjoy today is a product of the pollutants of a particularly successful species, the blue-green bacteria. And it's a real example for us to sort of understand about the interactions between life and the rest of the planet. There was no oxygen in the atmosphere. A particular species came along, was remarkably successful with its innovation of the type of photosynthesis it was using, and it ended up changing the entire chemistry of the planet uh, and in a way that was actually pretty detrimental in some ways for it because it was not an oxygen-breathing form of life. And so now that kind of bacteria has to live underground or under soil or in our guts, places where there isn't oxygen. The story of life changing the atmospheric chemistry, that should sound familiar, right? That's what we're doing. So we aren't a bane on the planet. We're just a very successful species doing its thing and doing it very well. The way we talk about climate change, the story we tell is wrong, right? We like to tell this story about human beings are terrible, we suck, we're a virus on the planet. And what we really see with something like the Great Oxidation Event is that, you know, we should have expected to change the atmosphere of the planet, right? We were a very successful species and we should have expected climate change because that's what happens when, you're when a species becomes really successful. The question then becomes, can you survive the climate change? Are you smart enough to survive the climate change you drive? Where does this leave us? We're just another species that has changed the climate in a dramatic way. But unlike those other species, are we smart enough to survive the change that we're creating? To really understand climate change and how changing climate can affect an entire planet, now we move away from the Earth and travel into our solar system. In fact, our solar system has two very good examples of a path that a planet can take. Mars and Venus, our two nearest neighbors. Venus is similar in a lot of ways to Earth. It's about the same size as mountains, valleys, and plains, and it's our closest neighbor. But Venus has a thick atmosphere that's almost entirely carbon dioxide. It's so thick that Venus has a runaway greenhouse effect, making temperatures on the surface rise to 460 degrees Celsius, or 860 degrees Fahrenheit. That's hotter than Phoenix. That's hot enough to melt lead. It's quite possible, however, that Venus was not always this way. Perhaps in the past, Venus was a lot like Earth, with oceans, rivers, and water before the greenhouse effect took hold. So Venus is interesting because Venus, when I talk about the astrobiological revolution, understanding Venus was one of the first great steps in that. And it's because fundamentally we went to Venus. There was already hints in like the late 50s that Venus had really high temperatures, that the temperature was, you know, 700 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, or 800 degrees Fahrenheit. And people were like, well, that can't be. Well, you know, because Venus is closer to the sun, but it's not that much closer to the sun, right? One of the first interplanet, successful interplanetary probe was the Mariner 2 probe that went to Venus in 1962. And it confirmed that the temperatures on the surface of the planet were, yes, 700, 800 degrees Fahrenheit. And it was Carl Sagan who worked out that that was all due to the greenhouse effect, that Venus had a, a lot of CO2. It's primarily, its atmosphere is primarily CO2. 
CO2 is a very, very potent greenhouse gas. And it was CO2 that basically uh, had turned Venus from, you know, what might have been, you know, maybe a few billion years ago, a much more milder climate into the, the living hell that it is today. Not living, it's the unliving hell, it's a sterile hell that it is today. Venus was a great example of learning about the greenhouse effect, not from Earth, but from another planet, like really understanding uh, its varieties by actually looking at the climate on other planets. In the other direction, we could swing out to Mars. Since it's smaller than Earth, the gravity on Mars is much weaker. On Mars, you would weigh only about a third of what you weigh here on Earth. Because of that weak gravity, Mars doesn't have very much of an atmosphere. And with no atmosphere, there's very little to regulate temperature. In the daytime, temperatures may reach a nice warm 20 degrees Celsius or 70 degrees Fahrenheit, but at nighttime, it falls to negative 153 degrees Celsius. That's negative 225 degrees Fahrenheit. Yet like Venus, it seems that Mars used to be a different place. We see canyons and gorges very similar to structures that were carved by water here on the Earth. This raises two questions. Did water used to flow on Mars? And if so, where did it all go? Mars is a great example of climate change in a traumatic and drastic way. Mars, for a while, clearly was a water world or had a lot of water on its surface. We have clear evidence now, and now the evidence is overwhelming. You know, it took a while for us to really build it up. But now we really know that Mars had standing bodies of water that, you know, may have been quite deep, that there was rushing water across the surface of Mars. Um, you know, there's one place where they were able to calculate that there was water flowing that was hip deep and moving at a couple of meters or centimeters per second. It was really rushing water. So Mars's climate clearly changed and changed in ways that were pretty dramatic. And it's not clear exactly why that happened. Part of it may just be the loss of Mars's atmosphere. Mars probably had a much thicker atmosphere, but it just lost it. But the great thing about Mars is it really shows us both Mars and Venus show us we understand climate not just from the Earth. It's like we've got these other planets that we understand climate quite well on, using a weather model or a climate model to study their climate in detail. So Venus, Mars, Titan, which is a, a, a moon of Saturn that has a very thick atmosphere. And here's the thing. Climate is universal. Anytime you have a planet with an atmosphere, you're going to get climate. And, and the rules are going to be pretty generic, pretty universal. So we have the jet stream on the Earth. Well, there's the jet stream on Mars. We have polar vortices on Earth. Similar things happen to Mars's jet stream. There are what are called Rossby waves in there. The laws of climate are universal. To understand what's happening now and what will happen to Earth in the future, we now have all of these remarkable histories, not only of our own Earth, but of other planetary bodies as well. What we've learned from our explorations of all of the worlds in the solar system, so we have now traveled to pretty much every type of body on the solar system. We visited all of the planets, we visited comets and asteroids and dwarf planets. And you know what we've really learned is how to think like a planet. We've understand we've learned to understand the rules, the complex rules of planetary behavior. And climate is part of that. The only way we've come to understand Earth's climate so well is by understanding, by learning from these other systems. So for example, uh, Mars has these amazing dust storms. In order to understand those dust storms, we had to really come to understand particulates, you know, like dust and, and, and uh, smoke, particles in the atmosphere. 
that contributed enormously to our understanding of fires on Earth. We now have better models for how fires or volcanoes will affect climate because of what we learned from Mars. So that's just one example. Now we know that the sky is actually littered with planets. It seems that almost every star has a planet, all with their own unique histories and stories. At the recording of this podcast, there are 3,999 other planets that we know of. Perhaps some of these have life, and perhaps some of these have civilizations. But how many? That we still don't know. To try to understand this number, there's a very famous equation known as the Drake Equation. Well, the Drake Equation is a, is a funny thing in that it's not a law of physics at all. It, it was a way that Frank Drake came up with in 1961 at a meeting that he was asked to convene about interstellar communications. They were trying to figure out how many civilizations are there out there in the galaxy that might be trying to communicate with us via radio. And all Frank Drake did was he tried to break that question up into a bunch of sub-questions that, you know, you could sort of usefully try and argue about. And so there are seven terms in the Drake equation that all get multiplied together, and the answer that it gives you is the number of technological advanced civilizations in the galaxy. And the seven terms are the rate of star formation, the fraction of those stars that have planets, the number of planets for each star that has planets that are in the, what's called the habitable zone, the region where you could have liquid water on the surface, of, or the region of orbits where you could have liquid water on the surface, the fraction of those planets where life forms, the fraction of that life that goes on to intelligence, the fraction of that intelligence that builds civilizations, and then the uh, longevity, the lifetime of the civilization. And of course, you know, as you go from left to right on that, you're going from some things you know to some things you just completely have to guess at. So when Frank Drake wrote down that equation, the only thing that was known was the first term, which was the rate of star formation. And everything else was a guess. Now, we now know that every star in the sky has planets, pretty much, and that there's about one out of five stars has planets in the right place for there to be liquid water, and therefore we think life could form. So we've actually now nailed the first three terms in the Drake equation. The other four, though, those are topics for debate. So what Drake equation does is it allows us to break up the problem of how many civilizations are there into a bunch of sub-problems, which we can then try and do our best, best efforts to think scientifically uh, and think reasonably about and try and make estimates. The first few terms we now know. There are many, many planets out there, and many of those planets lie within their star's habitable zone. In other words, they can have liquid water on their surface. But this leaves the last few terms of the Drake equation that we still don't know. Depending on what you choose, you can get numbers as high as a billion civilizations or zero civilizations. All of these final terms have to do with life. How probable is it for life to start? But what uh, a colleague and, my, and I did is we used all of those exoplanets we found to at least find out the probability that we were alone, right? That there were the only time in the universe that there's ever been a civilization. And what we did basically is we just counted up the number of habitable zone planets in the universe, which is 10 billion trillion. The only way we could be the only time it ever happened that the civilizations ever happened is if the odds per planet were less than one in 10 billion trillion. Now, how probable is it for life to survive? Once a civilization becomes technologically savvy, 
Does it last for millions of years? Or does it blow itself to smithereens within a couple of decades? Or do they face the same problem that we're facing now? Do they change the climate of their own planet so drastically that they don't stick around for long? One of the interesting terms in the Drake equation is the last term, the L, the lifespan of the civilization. So if a civilization, a technological civilization, lasts for 200 years, that's a very different thing than if it lasts for a billion years. So people have wondered, where are all the civilizations? Why haven't we heard anybody out in space? And I think it was Fermi who very famously asked, where is everybody? Where are the, where is it? Where are the advanced civilizations? And so the idea is there might be something like a what's called the Great Filter. So something is preventing these advanced civilizations from forming. Or if they form, then not lasting very long. So what do you think the Great Filter is? Is it something that's stopping the civilizations from forming in the first place? Or is it something that's stopping the civilizations from lasting for a long time? Well, the first thing we have to address is, is there a Fermi paradox, right? So... Um... So, uh, so before we address the Great Filter, is it true that there's a Fermi Paradox? And I'm going to actually argue, well, there's two versions of the Fermi Paradox. The first one was what Fermi was talking about. Well, he wanted to know why aren't they here, right? If intelligent, technological, advanced civilizations are common, then why haven't they landed on the White House lawn, right? So that's one version. The other version is what they sometimes refer to as the Great Silence. Why haven't we heard from anybody you know, why aren't our radio telescopes picking up uh, alien civilizations all the time? Now, the prob- there's problems with both of those. The first one is that it assumes that we've gone looking, right? People, have, uh, people often think that astronomers are always spending their time looking for radio signals of intelligent civilizations, and nothing could be further from the truth. And it's very, it's almost impossible to get money to do, do SETI. Basically, and there was a paper on this recently, the amount that we've looked, the amount that we've actually been able to do a coherent search for signals of other civilizations. If the stars were the ocean, the amount of ocean we've looked in right now is a hot tub. So it's like basically saying, we want to know whether there's dolphins. We looked in a hot tub for dolphins. We didn't find any. Therefore, there are no dolphins in the ocean. So that version of the Fermi paradox is just not a paradox because we haven't even looked. The other paradox, Fermi's original version, that might be more of a problem there may, there's a ways around that as well. So I'm going to, I just in general like to say that I don't really think there is necessarily a Fermi paradox right now, or at least it's not as killer as people say. However, there still could be a great filter. And I think that it's entirely possible that civilizations do have a hard time making it through certain stages. And I, you know, for me, climate change may be one, maybe one example of a great filter. Maybe it's not a great filter, but it's a pretty good filter. If we're thinking about an alien civilization that potentially exists, obviously we don't know much about it. We don't know exactly what they look like or what their society is like and what kind of economy they have or value system. Um, But you can look at other things, maybe such as their chemistry, like how they evolved and what kind of energy they might use. What do you think that we could safely say about an alien civilization and what kind of things that they would use for energy sources? As you rightly point out, when we're thinking about other civilizations, we don't want to write a science fiction story, right? So we have to stick to some very basic things about physics and chemistry and how planets work. You know, I'm not going to be able to say anything about their biology or about their, um, you know, their sociology. So all of those things 
you just want to avoid because you're just making stuff up, you know, and that may be fun, but it doesn't really help you scientifically. But if you stick to a very specific set of questions, there are some things you can really make some progress on. So if you just ask, how does a civilization affect its planet's state, particularly its climate state, by using energy, right? Any, by definition, a civilization is an engine for using energy and turning it into work. Right. You build buildings, you do whatever you do, whatever you do, you're organized and you're, you're harvesting energy from your planet to do useful work. And it turns out there's only going to be a young civilization, which is what we're kind of interested in here, is only going to have so many kinds of energy modes available to it. You'll either be able to burn stuff, maybe fossil fuels or just, you know, biomatter. There's fluids. If you have an atmosphere, you're going to have to have an atmosphere. You're going to have wind. You'll have solar. You'll always have some kind of version. You know, you can always harvest your starlight. Uh, tides, if you have oceans. So these things are going to be universal uh, on any planet. Those are going to be the energies modes that are available to you when you're building your civilization. In general, any alien technological civilization out there is probably getting their energy from similar places that we are. And like us, if they're burning things, they're probably disrupting their climate more than if they're doing things like, say, getting their energy from the winds on their planet. Assuming that this is true, Adam then wrote several stories of how a planet could develop. Would these civilizations burn fuel until their skies turned dark, their air filled with carbon dioxide and pollution, and their civilization collapsed? Or did they burn fuels and then very quickly transfer over to, say, harvesting the light of their star? He built these stories into models, and suddenly he had a mathematical way of understanding how long a civilization could last, depending on what type of energy they use. And of course, assuming they don't destroy themselves in some other creative way. So you can do what are called population biology models, coupled and link those to a climate model. You can just say like, look, I have every time, you know, the more energy I use, the higher my population goes. The higher my population goes, the more energy I use, and that energy use feeds back onto the planet's climate. And, you know, and you can do this in a very known way, because we know how, for example, on Earth, how our energy use feeds back on the planet. So you can make models of how population growth and climate change together on any kind of planet. Um, and that's what we did. We did a bunch of models like that. Very simple, but it was a dart. And what we found was that we saw a suite of a set of very reproducible kinds of behavior. Either the civilization collapsed, which was not good, or we also could find the civilization leveling off um, and then coming to a sustainable steady state with the planet, or we saw a big die off where the civilization would, the population would rise very quickly, but then there was, you'd lose 70 cent, 70%, 80% of your population before you came to a steady state. So I think we're at the beginning of actually being able to have a a theoretical science, at least, you know, of, of how civilizations and planets evolve together. So what's the best course for an energy-loving civilization to take if they want to stick around for a nice long time? We saw that there were these three classes of behavior and that they were very reproducible. You either had collapse sustainability or die off and then sustainability. So that was the important point there because, you know, one question you can ask is how do you even know if there is such a thing as sustainability? On Earth, we know that we're triggering climate change and that we want to build a sustainable version of our civilization. But how do we know the universe even does that? How do you know, the, how do you know there's such a thing as a sustainable civilization? So our model said, no, no, there should be. You know, planets and civilizations should be able to come into long-term steady state. So that was good. Right. We answered that question, at least 
in principle, there is such a thing as sustainable civilizations. But now the next step is to try and build more realistic models and try and answer exactly the question you were asking. What properties of civilizations and planets, when, you know, what are the properties of the histories that lead to sustainability that we can learn from? You and Carl Sagan both called our civilization sort of like a teenager uh, in the cosmic sense. We're still kind of learning how to make it in the universe. So knowing that there are so many different paths ahead and that it is in fact possible to come into equilibrium with our planet, like if you had some advice, what would it be going forward that what can we do to survive and to thrive? We need to learn to think like a planet. We need to recognize that we're part of the biosphere. We need to reintegrate ourselves back into the biosphere. We've had this sort of weird idea that somehow we can do anything we want and the planet's not going to notice. And those days are over. When we recognize that we are, in fact, part of the biosphere, that is the first step towards understanding that the biosphere will be happy to move on without us. <laughs> you know, Specific actions, listen, when it comes... If you're asking me about specific political actions, the answer is very easy. We need to stop. We need we need to build a different energy infrastructure, right? We, we, we have to be done with fossil fuels. And it's great if, you know, you personally want to drive an electric car. You should. That's all good. But the most important thing is to elect people who are going to take this seriously and move us to another energy infrastructure. As Adam said... The days are over where we were living in ignorant bliss and we could do whatever we want. We're part of this earth, and I, for one, want our civilization to stick around for a nice long time, maybe long enough to go to Mars, explore the stars, and perhaps even figure out if there are other civilizations out there that manage to survive too. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us at the web at sparkdialogue.com. Thanks for joining us, and see us in two weeks for another episode. Some of the background music that you heard is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. Other songs are Time Train by PC3, Out of the Fog at Pod Summit, and Thunderbird and Floating Cities by Kevin McLeod. These are all provided by the Creative Commons license. More information about these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.